Hello, and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to give you the background to some of the biggest topics of the day in the Asian region. I'm Rana Mitter, and I teach Chinese history and politics at Oxford University. And in this week's episode, we're going to ask one of the most pressing questions of the moment. How does China see itself as a great power? And beyond that, what does China think about us? And what does it think of what's happening in America and in Europe? China's two sessions, the meetings which include the National People's Congress this year, laid down a whole new economic plan for the next five years and cracked down hard on Hong Kong. But what's the bigger story? Where does China see all this going? And does the rest of the world have any role to play in the way that that narrative unfolds? Well, I've got two real experts to help me answer those questions. Professor Sean Breslin teaches Chinese politics at Warwick University, and his new book is China Risen, Studying China's Global Power, which is just out with Bristol University Press. And Suyen Pan is Associate Professor at the Department of Social Sciences at the Education University of Hong Kong, also known as EduHK. And she's co-author with Zhou Tin Yalulo of the book Higher Education and China's Global Rise, a neo-tributary perspective just out last year. And I myself have written on Chinese nationalism, most recently the book China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. So let's start to think about what China itself is saying about its place in the world. And Suyen, you're joining us today from Hong Kong. You're right in the heart of the region, the heart of the question. What do you think that China thinks about itself in the world at the moment? If there's a kind of overall concise narrative, what would that narrative be? This is a very interesting question. And the recent discourse in China has shown an increased confidence. But our conventional understanding of the realism tells us that a great power with a marked power advantage is likely to behave more aggressively because it has the capability and the confidence and the incentive to do so. But from this conventional perspective, China's current confidence puzzled the world. China has shown increased power capacities, but it is far from being a great power comparable to the United States. And the Chinese acknowledge this as well. But nowadays, it is still a very popular discussions in China that China should be confident about its global role, especially a leading role. So we might have to examine who are the shapers of this sense of confidence. And I found that since 2016, the confidence doctrine has been promoted as their signature political philosophy that the government officials and Chinese people must uphold. So perhaps this is one of the reasons that confidence has been a key word about China's global rise. Do you think so? Well, I think that's a great topic to bring up, Suyen. Can I just stick with you for a minute or two more before we bring Sean in? Because you've brought up the word confidence. And I think that that is a really interesting idea. I mean, you're right that I think that looking at what a lot of people, not just leaders, but also people on Chinese social media have been saying about China's rising role, that that's really important. But a lot of people would also say the opposite almost, that the way that China is in the world at the moment, you know, as a major power, seems often very 
defensive. It seems to be that, you know, China is often speaking in terms that suggest that anyone who's critical of China can, you know, essentially get a big pushback. So do you think that this sense of confidence is deep or is it more a kind of branding or a phrasing, but maybe doesn't speak to the reality of what's going on underneath? What's your view? I would say that it could be a part of the political imperative to promote and reinforce the confidence doctrine. Because if we look at who are the shapers of their discourse, it is mainly the government officials and Chinese scholars. Actually, it is quite a Chinese historical legacy that you need to promote the official discourse. Now, according to the Ministry of Education, the funded research project in Chinese social sciences and humanities must implement and reinforce the four matters of confidence. The research must apply to the construction of philosophical and social science discourse with Chinese characteristics and serving the Communist Party and the country's development and using the excellent performance to celebrate the CPC's 100th anniversary. So we can see that using diplomatic talk and publications to display and portray a confidence China is a political imperative that the government officials and scholars must dutifully work for. So it may explain that we can see a drastically increasing number of publications nowadays in both Chinese and English language attempting to argue for Chinese confidence. So I think that this could be a part of the political performance displayed by Chinese elite. That's extraordinarily interesting, Suyan. Just one question from what you said. I think people will find it very interesting. You say that basically it's it's four points, is it, of confidence specifically that they put forward? And those are the points that you mentioned. Are they about the role of the party and, and these other things? What are the four points? So it says that being confident in China's chosen pathway of development in the direction of the development of socialism with Chinese characteristics and the confidence in its future. The second confidence is the confidence in the theory of socialism with Chinese characteristics. And then the third point is the confidence in its system, which means that the confidence in the advanced nature of Chinese socialism. The fourth point is the confidence in its culture. So it's a full confidence of the value of China's own culture and their faith in its vitality. I think that's a really interesting set of points that people will no doubt want to keep in mind as they try and assess this question of whether China really is feeling confident, what it's confident about. Let me turn now to Sean Breslin. Sean, just taking up those four points of you know the reasons for China's confidence, what struck me about what Su Yan said was that all of those points are very internal. I mean, you know, you clearly, I think, wouldn't go around the world saying that having a socialist culture with Chinese characteristics is a recipe to be a great power in the world. It's much more a recipe for being a great power at home. And I know that you, particularly in your new book, have been looking at the way that China talks to itself about the question of being great power and not being a rising power, but in the way that you phrase it, actually a risen power, a power that has risen and is in that place. What does your careful examination of the discourses, the language of China as a great power from within China itself tell you about the way that people think and that the way that they feel? 
I think the first thing to say, Rona, is um, that it's not that long ago that people in China, academics, policymakers, people in think tanks, had real question marks over whether China was indeed a great power yet or not. I mean, if you go back to not long after the global financial crisis, 2010, 2011, 2012, there were very mixed messages coming out. Some people saying that there was still a long way to go before China got anywhere near great power status. Others suggesting that it was a bit closer. But there is more or less a consensus now that that great power status has been achieved. And that's why I called the book China Risen. Albeit with a question mark in it, because I think there are still serious questions about where it goes in the future, whether it continues to rise even further, whether it stagnates, stays where it is, or whether it even goes backwards. But that breakthrough, I think, was made under Xi Jinping. And also this idea, though, of a great power that isn't quite as great as the greatest of great powers. And so you have a situation where a China that has expressed its dissatisfaction with the global order, that wants to change some of the distribution of power within the existing order, maybe some of the principles that underpin it, is doing so from a position of not quite as powerful as the greatest of great power, I think is perhaps one of the consensuses that comes out of this. So a few years ago, the American scholar David Shambor wrote a book called China Goes Global, and the subtitle of that was China the Partial Power. Is that the way that Chinese thinkers, I know that they, you know, obviously have been having debates, not everyone has the same viewpoint, but is that sense of being a partial power great, but maybe like you know some of the vaccines against COVID, 90% effective rather than 100%? Is that the way that they characterise it? Well, first of all, I mean, David's book really annoyed me because it was really good. And it was the book that I wanted to write. And he got it out and did a really good job of it. But yeah, I think so. There's an understanding that in some issue areas, China has more power, more credibility, more capabilities than in others. And in some respects, you can see the things that are being pushed as maybe signs of where there are feelings of weakness. So this whole push for Chinese soft power, for example, that we hear time and time again at the party congresses, suggests to me a recognition that there is a big deficit when it comes to Chinese soft power. In some respects, I think it's promoted because C and others think that soft power is something that a great power simply should have. Therefore, as a great power, people should read Chinese writings, watch Chinese films. But it's also about inserting this Chinese narrative into the way that China is discussed outside the country. And I think there is a recognition that this is one area where China is quite weak. And, and it sort of comes back to your question that you started off with, really, about whether this is really about confidence or about something else. And my view is that you don't really need to talk about self-confidence and promoted in the way that it has been promoted, if you have it. And I think there's a degree of a lack of confidence and a degree of defensivism in this as well. I mean, it talks a lot of China, either close to the policy system or those who study it. And it doesn't take very long before this idea of a rather hostile international environment comes out. China is trying to wade through difficult waters, trying to find its way in a world where the existing powers are not amenable to accommodating China, really don't want it to grow any further. And that things that might look aggressive from the outside are really seen as being very defensive from the inside, sort of a reflection of China's not isolated place in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but as I said before, the lack of accommodation by the great powers. I think your point about declaring confidence might be something you don't have it. It's what I, in a startling new geopolitical theory, 
I'm terming the Demi Lovato School of Geopolitics. You may be familiar with their hit song, Confidence, which has the line, what's wrong with being confident? And it does emerge in recent uh, showbiz reports that Lovato has actually had an awful lot of you know, personal problems that suggest, in their own words, that they're not actually nearly as confident as they've claimed. I would be the last one to necessarily suggest this directly maps onto China's need to declare its own confidence the whole time. But it may be that sometimes looking at the latest things that are happening on YouTube might be more useful than some of the more abstruse theoretical works. But I digress uh, a little bit on, on that question. One of the areas that I think actually is tremendously productive in terms of understanding how China looks at itself as a great power is to think about history. I mean, I've spent probably far too much of my life looking at the way in which China looks at one particular event, which actually has global significance. That's World War II. And, you know, for those of us, I'm speaking from the United Kingdom. I think you are too, Sean. I mean, you're over in Hong Kong. I know Suyen. But, you know, Britain is a country that one way or another still turns back, you know, to the myths and the stories of World War II as a way of thinking about itself, you know, 75 years later in the 21st century. And I found that actually, in a way that the West doesn't always recognize, China thinks about that struggle as important too. you know, eight years of fighting against the Japanese, you know, it's seen as a terrifying, awful period of conflict, but one in which China ended up victorious at the end. And the results of that, including, of course, China's status, which it has to this day as a permanent five member of the UN Security Council, is also a product of that post-war order. I, I've noted with, with interest, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, amongst others, being those who talk in, in public about China being the first signatory to the UN Charter in 1945. And of course, that's a way of laying claim to the international order and saying, you know what, you may think of yourselves in America as being the kind of founders of this order. But when it comes to international global order, when it comes to the big powers that shaped it, we were there also, and we were there first. And that is, I think, for Westerners, a relatively new way of thinking about that Chinese involvement in the world. And that mention of history reminds me, Suyen, that one of the things that's lacking often in China, in the West, elsewhere, is sufficient understanding of the longer perspective. And that, of course, comes from education. And you, of course, are a huge expert on education and how it's used to build national identity. Could I ask about history first? How important do you think that history is in China's shaping of its own narrative of itself as a great power? I think history has been written and rewritten according to the states like. Then if you look at the Confucius Institute nowadays, that is used to project China as a benevolent global power. So this is one of the example. And also, if we look at the One Bell, One Road initiative nowadays, we might be able to trace back to the tributary tradition. In my book, I use the term neo-tributary. And we found that actually China has carry on their neo-tributary mentality nowadays. For example, it used education to promote Chinese greatness in the language education, in Chinese education, in history education. So this is the key theme. Could you give us an example of what you mean when you're talking about China being a neo-tributary state? It's a really interesting idea because for historians, there's a long and actually rather controversial idea that China didn't have kind of equal international relations in the past, but 
required other states to pay tribute to it. Now, there's a huge amount of historical controversy over this. A lot of historians don't actually believe that the tributary system ever existed. But the point is that people believe that it existed and people often think in those sorts of mindsets. So what would be an example of China using that kind of framing of international relations for its present day status as a great power? Could you give us an example of that? Oh, yes. So the near tributary concept has four categories. One, concern about the Chinese exceptionalism. So this justifies China's motivation to be a great power again. So to pursue its paradise as it used to have. And also the interrelated relationship between the trade and the diplomacy. So this is an academic means that China has used to engage with the rest of the world. And also the culture assimilation. So this is the political strategy that China has used to engage with especially the young people and the elite in foreign countries. That through education, through academic exchange, that socialize people into China's discourse of China and the relationship between China and the world. One of the things that people have seen from recent opinion polling about China's reputation in other countries, particularly in Western European and North American countries, but also in other countries too, is that in the last year or two, China's ratings have been very low. You know, in other words, at home, you get very high opinion poll ratings for confidence in China's government, you know, 90% or plus. It does appeal that a lot of people are genuinely, you know, very much behind the government in China. But overseas, China's reputation has really, you know, dipped. You see kind of numbers like 20%, 30%, very low favorability. Does that suggest that the kind of neo-tributary tactics you're talking about, the idea of trying to get some idea of cultural assimilation with China, the understanding of China's a great power, that China's techniques simply don't work? Yeah, yeah. Actually, image building is a part of the neo-tributary. So that matters for the legitimacy defense. Actually, China nowadays still trying to defense its image. Soon after that pure survey result was published in October 2020. This was the survey that gave China very low ratings around the world, yeah. Yeah, it's a survey. And then within two months in a survey published in December of the same year, the Chinese scholars found that actually Chinese dislike the rest of the world, especially the United States as well. The result was quite interesting. It says that about 70% of the American people hold an unfavorable view of China, but there are 77% of Chinese people had the same view of the United States. So the conclusion is that the negative feelings are mutual and Chinese and American equally dislike each other. So we can see that, yeah, it is uh, image management. Yeah, isn't the issue that follows from that, though, that in most other countries around the world, particularly since the election of Joe Biden, to be honest, America's ratings in most countries except China are very high, whereas China's ratings in most other countries around the world are also very low, just like in America. Yeah. And if we look at the sample size, we find that actually the survey conducted in China had a very small sample size. It's about 1,064 respondents, less than 10% of the respondents of the Pew survey. 
But this is the way that China managed to create a public opinion that defends their image in the world. So, Sean, one of the things that occurs to me is that, you know, having said what we've just said about the different favorability ratings for China around the world, is that certain techniques in certain parts of the world, tactics may be working better than others. So, you know, Western Europe, I think, at least Northwestern Europe, Germany, France, Britain are probably lost territory for Chinese soft power, the ability of China to project positive image of itself. But actually, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, large parts of the Middle East are places where China's image as a major power that brings funding, that brings a new way of doing things, has a certain amount of real cachet. And of course, the so-called vaccine diplomacy push, the idea that Sinopharm, Sinovac, anti-COVID vaccines, which have been rolled out in countries as far apart as Brazil, when the president there, you know, let's anyone acknowledge that COVID actually exists, or indeed in countries like the United Arab Emirates, this has actually done China's image a lot of good in the world. So if we think about that question of what it means to be a great power, it's a very subjective term, after all, there's no one definition of it, but one which perhaps is you know, taken seriously, is respected in the, in the world. Does China basically have a better bet if it's looking outside the global north to maybe the you know, emerging and growing global south markets of the world? Yeah, absolutely, Rana. And of course, the complication of what a great power is, is even more complicated than the Chinese case, because it can just simply mean big. <laughs> and there's no doubt that China is a big power, even if it's not a great power. I mean, if we're thinking about power transitions, it's very easy to focus on what the rising power wants and does, and quite rightly so too. But we need to consider a couple of other things as well. One is what the existing powers are doing or not doing, because power transitions aren't just about the riser, they're about the decliner as well. And I think if we look at what's happened in the world since, well, let's say this millennium, then there's quite a lot that's been done by the, what shall we call it, the liberal West itself to undermine its own legitimacy and the force of some of its arguments. In fact, going back to Chinese scholarship, most Chinese scholars who look at China's place in the world will start off by looking at what happened with intervention in the Middle East and North Africa as being the starting point of fissures in the Western world. But the global financial crisis is always, always comes up, it always looms very large in discussions in China about the nature of the global order and China's place within it. That was when the West was expelled from the Garden of Eden, in other words. Well, right. Yeah, it's partly because China responded to that crisis better than those who caused the crisis in the first place did. Now, in brackets, we can question what's going to happen in the long term to the debt that was used for that response. But certainly in the short term, the Chinese response looked much more effective and was more quick but also because it delegitimizes the neoliberal project, if we can call it that, that it undermines neoliberalism. And even if China doesn't do anything, then the force of the arguments of liberal preferences begin to decline there. So you've got these questions of humanitarian intervention, you've got the questions of the effectiveness of the neoliberal economic model. And what this means, I think, in large parts of the world where there's a shared dissatisfaction with the nature of the global order, there's a shared dissatisfaction with the distribution of power in key institutions, there's a shared dissatisfaction with the imposition of liberal norms and preferences, as it seems. All China needs to do, really, is not be the West. And I think, to a large extent, this image promotion of China that Su Yan's been talking about is really built around a process of what we might call Occidentalism. So uh, to say that um, China doesn't interfere in other countries or that China prefers peace is facile in itself, unless others do interfere and don't want peace. And the image of the West, and this West is an aggregated, decentralized West, really, 
is that it does all the negative things that then China stands as the exact opposite to. So this means both in terms of material relations, in terms of turning up with countries with no political strings attached, but with large checks, in terms of supporting greater participation of developing countries in global governance organizations, and perhaps even suggesting new ones or complementary ones, then I think there is a fertile ground for China and other countries, which means that we now bring the attention on to followership and the importance of followership. And I think this is something that has been overlooked a little bit in some of the fascination with China, is that China can't change the world just on its own. It can't click its heels three times and wish it was back in Kansas. It can't have that form of transition to a new global order. It needs to get followership along the way. And in some areas, in some parts of the world, simply not being the West and projecting an image of otherness, I think is quite appealing. I mean, if we we think what the China model might be, I, I still think it's more important to think about what it's not. And that message of what it's not, I think, is the signal that has largely been sent and heard and listened to in large parts of the world. But I think that's right. Actually, I recently used the phrase, not America with a hyphen in the middle as one way of dividing China in the world. But I do also want to just press a little bit on some of what you might call the positives, because there's one area, and I think you've written about it recently, actually, Sean, where I think that China is offering something that actually does bolster its claims to being a great power in the sense of a power that can shape and change the world. And that is technology. You know, 10, 15 years ago, I don't think we were talking, in fact, I know that we weren't talking about China as a major tech innovator, a major disruptor. The big companies that we know about, the Huawei, ZTEs, and so forth of this world existed, but they weren't really the kind of globally talked about game changers that they are now. And yet now, if you are, you know, thinking about reworking the entire economy of a developing society in sub-Saharan Africa, if you are Argentina, where recently economics has got so bad that you know the internet has essentially been taken into government control because the private sector couldn't cope, and China, I think, is being looked at there as a possible saviour, there is a whole way in which it seems that China's capacity to both, how can one say, borrow without attribution certain aspects of international technology, along with genuine innovation from inside, is one of the things that may genuinely boost its status as a great power. Yeah, I I agree entirely. I mean, I think if we're looking for game changers in terms of China's global profile, great powerness, as it were, the first I would say was the expansion of significant outward financial flows from about 2002, 2003. I know there was outward investment before then, but it's notable that when the NDRC, National Development Reform Commission, did their own review of Chinese investment, they started the figures from 2002. So that, I think, is the the big game changer where China is no longer just seen as a production site, a recipient of investment, but becomes a significant source of outward flows. And it's no coincidence, I think, that perceptions of China began to change in large parts of Western Europe as those flows turned more towards Western Europe and North America in about 2011, 12, 13. So that would be the first game changer. The second one is still, though, I think, in process. And that is, as you say, technology and disruption. We've already seen some significant transitions within China. There are still problems, I think, in making the next steps up to being ahead of the curve rather than just behind the curve. And as you say, what was the term you used? Emulation or something like that, Rana? Adaptation without attribution, I think. That's right. So, I mean, we're still, I think, at that 
that level. But that in itself is significant, right? That is important. But we've already seen some companies gaining the upper hand in technological leadership. And this is clearly one of the objectives of Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership over the coming years, to make that transition into technological leadership. And that could really have consequences. I mean, I remember back when people were talking about Chinese power because China was receiving so much investment and screwdriving things together and sending it overseas. And I thought, is that really Chinese power? Is that power of global corporations? And then the outflow of Chinese investment seemed to me to be a game changer. At the moment, I still think we're in that process of, is it quite Chinese power? But I certainly think it's a transition that the Chinese leadership wants and expects to take, and take very quickly too. We've seen, for example, some of the um, acquisitions through mergers and acquisitions of leading tech companies to get technological leadership in that way. But indigenous innovation is clearly very high on the list of targets for the next five years and beyond. And yeah, I think we could be in for um, a new research agenda very soon. Cien, could I ask you to speak from where you're sitting at the moment in Hong Kong? Because it seems to be that one of the economic game plans for China in the next few years is to combine the huge pools of financial capital that are available in Hong Kong as a source of investment with the tech innovation that's going on literally across the border in the city of Shenzhen, and to sort of fuse these two together as a kind of machine that combines capital and innovation to create a very indigenous sort of Chinese technology. And that's part of the story. That's part of the narrative of why China wants to project itself as a great power. In other words, a great power that is at the cutting edge, as Sean says, or beyond the cutting edge of what the next phase of the future is going to be. Well, China has a traditional wisdom of saving the country by science and technology since the late Qing Dynasty. And then nowadays it is trying to combine this development in science and technology with the financial capacity possessed by Shenzhen and Hong Kong. So if we look at the story and then we trace back in 1980s, China tasked Chinese universities to develop advanced science and technologies, and that include learning from the West. So that is the reason that China allowed Chinese students to study in their United States. Actually, in my book, I told the story about the academic exchange between China and the United States opened the gate of China's diplomatic relationship with the United States. So China has stored a large number of talents in the United States. This is from the Chinese official discourse that treated United States as a source of advanced science and technology. And then in the 1990s, through the early 2000s, China has launched a lot of strategic recruitment schemes that target overseas Chinese who have had the academic achievement or working experience in high-tech areas and then uh, attract them back to work for China. So nowadays, most of the internet service providers and dot-com companies in China were established and run by foreign-trained Chinese who return to China and start their business. So according to the recent discourse, China's internet-based technologies and high-tech business are expected to enlarge China's market value, especially through their registration in their 
stock market, both American stock market and Hong Kong stock market. And then the creation of the Greater Bay Area that include Hong Kong and the Guangdong province that also extend this story, which expect that their strengths in technology and innovation could be further financed by the capital provided from Hong Kong, then that can further boast up the innovative technology. Which then, of course, projects outwards in terms of China's ambitions in the world. So 5G can be rolled out not just in China, but in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, and many other, other places. So it's very clear technology, economics, education, a whole variety of factors we've discussed do come together to create the idea, certainly in China's mind, that it is a great power, whatever that term may mean, and at least to force the rest of the world to consider and debate that possibility, even if they don't necessarily, by any means, share all of China's premises. But Sean, what are the things one notices about other great powers that have emerged in the world, the British Empire in the 19th century, Cold War America in the 1950s and 60s and beyond, is that sometimes the times when they've come most to grief, the point at which their great powerness, to use your term there, has become most difficult to sustain is, or to put it crudely, when they've started to believe their own publicity. In other words, one of the things that has both helped the United States to maintain a dominant position, but one of the things that often annoys its boosters, is the idea that things may have gone wrong, that there may be another way of doing things, that there, there has to be some space for people to actually say, look, we're getting this wrong, and we need to think about another way of doing it. And the Iraq war might be a good example in the 2000s of when the kind of echo chamber prevented that happening. One of the things that people say observing today's China and China over the last, say, decade or so, is that it would appear that even while its economic strengths and its model have accumulated many strengths, at the same time, it seems very difficult for contrary views. I'm not just talking about, you know, kind of dissent in the classical sense, but, you know, the ability of people within the system to say, look, you need to think about this way of doing things, or maybe we should be less of that, or maybe you want to tone down your diplomacy on this, or you want to boost how you, you deal with questions of education domestically on, on another area. All of these things just seem harder to say. And there seems to be very few cases of sustainable great powers that can last for decades rather than a few years, which actually close off criticism to the extent that China seems to be doing at the moment. Is this merely the kind of, you know, sort of continued and often disproved liberal thought that you can't possibly have a successful society without having some space for wiggle room? Or, you know, is China going to buck that trend? Or is there a real problem? I mean, can we actually go back to the beginning and when we were talking about the four self-confidences and this idea that perhaps it emerges from a lack of confidence rather than sort of uber-confidence, as it were? And maybe I'm wrong, right? I have been wrong in the past, and I'm sure I'll be wrong in the future. But when I look at what Xi Jinping has done, and certainly what he did in that first term, it strikes me that you only do that if you are concerned, right? That you come to power and you're concerned that the party has lost touch with the people, that the people don't trust it anymore, that the party itself has become 
fragmented, that there's no unifying, coherent ideology. And So when you say what Xi Jinping has done there, sure you're talking about what the anti-corruption campaign, the kind of crackdown? Well, the concentration of his power over the party, him personally taking control over a number of leading groups, for example, the corruption campaign. But as you say, this general closing off of the political space or the reduction in the political space. I think he looked, and we, we know that he studies the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think he looked at Chinese Communist Party rule in 2011, 2012, as he was taking power and thought that it wasn't necessarily built on very strong foundations. And the route that he's decided to go down has been to close off a political space that, that I think had been actually relatively opened under his predecessor, Hu Jintao. I think there had been an attempt to create a sort of legally bound, listening, predictable, more plural authoritarian one-party state under Hu Jintao. That's not a contradiction in terms. And he's decided to go the other way. And there is opposition, or, or if not opposition, there is criticism. There is more than perhaps immediately comes across. And, and it creates problems because... As Suyan was saying, because of the way that the research grant system operates in China, if you just depend on what's written, you're going to find people who have got grants basically to repeat the official line. But there are people who are saying, well, are you sure? Should we hold on a little bit? Should we think about this in a different way? And if you take the Belt and Road, for example, something that has been lauded and promoted across the world, I mean, there was a period when you couldn't walk through London without tripping over another think tank sent from China to explain its benefits to the world. I think we've seen a significant change in the way that the Belt and Road has been thought of and promoted within China as a result of the pushback against the initial, shall we say, exuberance and rush to sort of jump onto the Belt and Road bandwagon. And this sounds like I'm just using this podcast to promote my own work, and to some extent I am. We uh, produced a special issue of the Pacific Review last year where we basically got some leading Chinese specialists in their field to say, what are the debates in your area over China's place in the world? And the debates are there. They're perhaps not as plural as they once were. It's perhaps easier to say some things than others. It's perhaps some things are shouted a bit louder than other things, but the debates still are there. It's just they're a little bit harder to find than before. But the answer to your question is, yes, I do think it creates problems. I, I, I do think that there are issues going forward. If this turns out to be a temporary restabilization of what Xi Jinping thinks needs to be restabilized, then that's one thing. If it moves to something more permanent, then who knows? But we can also come back to what you were saying about history. So originally, the four self-confidences were the three self-confidences, and culture was later added by Xi Jinping. And if you look at the way that Xi Jinping explains his theoretical thinking, we have a much stronger focus on what he calls Chinese wisdom, Chinese philosophical wisdom and historical experiences than before, I think, in shaping Xi Jinping thought. This is meant to be a system of thought that derives from applying Marxist-Leninist theory to Chinese concrete experiences and circumstances, and then generating this new system of thought. I think what Xi Jinping's done actually is say that there's not one starting point in Marxism-Leninism, but almost two starting points. One is Marxism-Leninism, and the second is Chinese wisdom, Chinese history, Chinese philosophy, Chinese culture. And what that does, if you, if you follow the logic through, is a system where 
China comes out as being unique. Now, you can say that all countries are unique because every country has its own unique features and histories and cultures. But it's almost a philosophy of China's unique uniqueness, that there is a special uniqueness about China. And that this makes it sort of fundamentally different from how other countries have been in the past and, and how other countries have evolved and developed their political systems and also perhaps how they've acted as great powers too. And that niggles at me. I don't like this idea of fundamental differences. It's a different way of thinking about potential weaknesses in the future than what you were saying about this lack of openness and transparency and pluralism and, if you like, safety valves and listening. But if you add this on top of that, it does give me some concerns for the future. We're beginning to come to the end of our time, but I might just collect a final thought from each of you, if I may. And Suyen, could I come back to you? Clearly, the debates that are going on both inside China and outside China, about whether or not it's a great power, it's a rising power, you know, it's a power that's going to make a difference, will go on for quite some time to come. Could I ask for your assessment? I mean, you know, you've been looking through the lens of education, but also you've been looking at this idea of China as the neo-tributary state, as you put it. Do you think that China should be categorized as a great power? Not that it's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but just in some objective sense, is it now meaningful to talk about China as a great power? So if we want to assess whether China could be a great power or not, it depends on what are the indicators we use to assess that. Now, according to Chinese, they use their GDP as an indicator of the great power, but there are also arguments asking if we use the Human Development Index as an indication, and then China ranked far behind the other developed countries. So it depends on what are the indications. But China, nowadays, they are confident in using the technology to claim a global power in terms of cyber security. China could manage their image through the use of the technology, using the tailor-made information, the big data, according to the educational level, age and occupations. Also, it can create the echo chamber effect through which only desirable information are fitted. And then that would shape the image of China as a global power. So this is the new rules of the games in the globalization area. China nowadays is challenging our understanding of the global world. For example, Xi Jinping's idea of the shared culture of humankind to dissolve the sovereignty-based idea of the nation-state to create a borderless world of the humankind. And then how to achieve that? Now, the Chinese discourse would say that China can use the internet-based technology that might pave a way for China to lead the cyber world that can transcend the geographic national border which might justify its support to the 5G technology and cyber control within the territory. So what we are looking at, the action and also the discourse, it might be hard to deny that China is making the way to project it as a great power nowadays. So perhaps a great but a virtual power. Thanks very much. And Sean, briefly from you, I think we know that China is an influential power. We know that China these days is overall, in terms of GDP, a rich power, and it's certainly an ambitious power, but is it a great power? 
I think the answer to that is yes. I think it is a great power. Definitions are hugely problematic, but I think it's partly a great power because in the minds of China's leaders, it's become a great power. But you see, I still think that the fundamental goal of this project, this power project, is to create what we might call a an autonomous developmental space for the Chinese leadership. And by that, I mean to create freedom for Chinese leadership to do what the, the hell that they want within their own sovereign territory. I mean, it's not a geographic space, although actually accepting Chinese definitions of the parameters of its own territory <laughs> is a geographic issue and, and creating new economic geographies to sort of reduce vulnerabilities when it comes to economic insecurity has a real geographic space too. But it's just this idea of being able to do what you want to do in your own territory without let or hindrance or criticism from the outside world. And I think that's still the main goal. And one of the ways in which this sort of manifests itself is trying to get others to perhaps share some of the rejection of the existing predominant global norms and preferences. If you like, to use the language of the pandemic, to build up a form of herd immunity to the dominance of liberalism. And the reason that there's a lot of hesitation in my voice is I'm not sure that that is exactly the same thing as promoting an alternative world view. I mean, CN talks about the borderless world and the community of shared future for mankind, but, but actually isn't the whole basis of that saying we don't believe in a cosmopolitical world as some liberals do. We believe in a world of nation states where the highest form of authority and autonomy should be within that nation state. And we promote a global system of diversity where every country is free to do what it wants within its own sovereign state. I mean, if that is a global vision for a new global order, and I guess if you take some definitions of it, then it is, then, then yes, I think China can really clearly be seen as a great power. But it's a great power I would define in some respects in sort of more negative and defensive terms at the moment, rather than, if you like, projecting a, an alternative vision of world order. Yeah, that seems right to me, Sean. I mean, I think in one sense, the definition of great power is a power that can change the weather, you know, a, a power that has the power to move the global economy or to change norms or a whole variety of things around the world, which would be different if that power didn't act. And I think in those terms, China is absolutely a great power in a sense that it wasn't, say, 25 or 30 years ago. But in another sense, the idea of a great power as a society which in some ways has a fundamental interest in the outside world in terms other than the immediate benefit of the society itself, I'm not so sure. In strange ways in the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were both very keen in different ways to change the rest of the world and make it more like themselves. I've never been convinced that's exactly what China wants to, to do. I agree. I think what it is that China wants to promote is not necessarily itself, not a model of itself, not its own political system, but coming back to what we were saying before, to undermine the ability of others to promote their preferences on the global order. And I think that still remains the major goal of the Chinese leadership when it comes to international interactions. And again, I'm hesitating a little because I think it is changing in some issue areas. This whole debate about China's rise has been very dichotomized into black and whites. Is it revisionist? Is it status quo? Is it this? Is it that? And actually, because of the recognition of differential power capabilities within China, and actually because parts of the existing global order have actually served China really very well, I think there is this differential approach to the global order too. 
So in some areas, China wants to, or Chinese leaders, I should say, want to perhaps increase Chinese power within the existing system, within the existing order. I think trade might be one of those areas, for example. In other areas, it wants to perhaps more fundamentally challenge and undermine the supposed predominance of the thinking of others. And human rights would be one area. Absolutely right. I think it's what you might call Schrodinger's normativity. In other words, you're both inside and outside the global order, and you don't know until you take a look and see what Beijing actually says. It's also a sign, I think, that this conversation is one that we'll have to pick up probably sooner rather than later. There's still a tremendous amount to discuss, but that is going to be it for this week's Asia Matters. Many thanks to my guests, Sean Breslin and Suyen Pan. My name is Rana Mitter, and please do subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on all major platforms or visit asiamatterspod.com, which is our website. Many thanks for listening, and we'll hope to have you with us next time. <laughs>